Many thanks to Stanley for allowing me to participate in the uh, in the seminar series. To Anna Lavis, who I, I wish was here, um, but for I think providing me with an entree into the series. Um, this, as um, as Michelle had mentioned, I'm mainly a historian, um, but I'm an interdisciplinary historian, and so the more I started to work on what I thought was an easy, easy project on the history of fat, which I was asked to do some years ago uh, by Reaction Books, I thought that should be simple to do. Uh, the more I got into it, the more I started to rethink what fat, I think, means in uh, especially Western culture. This is especially since I started going back to antiquity, which is probably my biggest mistake, but it was actually the most fruitful mistake because it delayed the project, but forced me to rethink what fat is, not only as an adjective referring to the morphology of the body, but also as a substance uh, noticeable in the land itself, within trees, an interesting cross um, series of cross-referencings between human and the natural world that I've noticed uh, occurring, uh, but also cross-referencings between body fat and oil and grease. And so the way I've been thinking about um, fat has developed considerably over time. And one of the themes that's emerged that I've tried to examine in more detail in about the last year or so is the theme of animality, which I realized, without really paying much attention to it, is a recurring motif throughout this cultural history of fat that I've been trying to write. And so when Dr. Labus asked if I would participate in a special issue of Theory, Culture, and Society on, uh, on materiality and bodies, I thought, well, this could be an interesting opportunity to explore this in a different way. So this is a yet another detour from the book, but a pleasant one because it's, it's allowed me to examine things that I've been, uh, I've been getting more interested in lately, and I approach it in a, a kind of odd way. Now, um, I've been given several versions of this paper in, uh, in Germany, and then, uh, mostly in Germany, and, but not of the particular material here. So I've given more, I think, craft-friendly work uh, dealing, de detailing the history of fat American stereotyping. And this paper today is examining uh, in a little bit more detail what I call the logic of gavage, which I think helps to explain some of the, the way in which animalization functions in relation to stereotypes about fat Americans or about the fattened American, which is what I'm trying to draw attention to here. Because I suggest that when we think about the role of animality or animalization in the production of fat stereotypes, it's not so much fatness that is an issue than fattening, that is a process that leads to something. And I'll be suggesting that fattening, at least historically speaking, has always had some kind of implicit aim, some telos, I suppose, uh, usually not pleasant. And, um, and so I'll be suggesting this considerable degree of continuity over time, even though I will spare you all the antiquity, um, the ancient stuff that I used in previous versions of this talk. So, yeah. So the way into this, um, this particular way of thinking about the fat American is a bit unusual. That's through foie gras. When a California state law banning the production and sale of foie gras went into effect in 2012, it ignited a controversy within France whose ramifications extended beyond the ban's immediate aims. Foie gras's connection to French gastronomic patrimony aligns it with other rich, traditional delicacies, whose resurgence in recent years reveals local points of resistance to the hegemony of agribusiness and fast food such as, for example, lardo in Italy or extra virgin olive oil. Foie gras is definitely aligned in that group. Vexed French reactions to the ban 
are thus instructive in examples of gastro-nationalism um, in which attacks, uh, symbolic or otherwise, according to Susi here, against a nation's food practices are assaults upon heritage and culture, not just on the food itself. But the California ban aimed less at insulting French culture than at the, pra- the traditional practice of force-feeding ducks and geese, known as gavage, that was the source of much foie gras production. Alongside French groups like Stop Gavage, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, or PETA, is one of the several animal rights organizations that have drawn attention to the practice. PETA emphasizes that the birds themselves are subjected against their will to an ordeal that appears as a form of torture, the forced oral ingestion of food for the sole purpose of creating the disease that makes their livers prized as delicacies. Eliciting disgust has been a key tactic in PETA campaigns. And I had hoped to explore uh, in this larger paper the relationship between disgust as an emotion and anxieties about animality, because most people who study disgust end up concluding that at the heart of it all, it is disgust at one's own animality and mortality that is really elicited in this, uh, in this emotion. But the way the paper is working out now, uh, there's just no room for that, unfortunately. So this is one of the few references I can make to disgust here, because I'd love to talk about it a bit more. Listening disgust has been nevertheless a key tactic in PETA's campaigns. In many of the group's staged happenings, female actors, and here it's, um, oh sorry, that's cut off, that's uh, Ingrid, uh, oh, Kirk, uh, it was on the, it's on the, sorry, Ingrid Kirkwall, Kirkwall, um, the PETA, the president of PETA, um, who's being uh, placed in, in the role of the, the goose or the duck. Here. In these staged happenings, female actors, I've never seen a male actor cast in these roles, uh, pose as if they have been force fed grain on elegantly prepared dining tables while a stoic, almost always male, waiter looks on. Blood trickles from their mouths around which grain sticks, and the two often mingle together on the table that, um, in, other, in other examples, supports their head. Quite often, it's a woman face down on the table, but where you can see her mouth and grain and blood. Uh, apparently overflowing from the tube that had been in there. Insofar as concerns about the moral status of the animal have been historically less developed in France than in other Western countries, Gallic reactions to the foie gras ban typically sidestep the rights of non-human animals to focus instead on matters of taste and cultural patrimony. Charges of American hypocrisy were thus more common. Squeamishly moralizing Americans consider gavage to be cruel they would claim, while blithely tolerating battery farms for animals and capital punishment and torture for humans in their own country. Common, too, were long-standing complaints about Americans' lack of culinary discernment. Most Americans have never tasted, thus cannot appreciate foie gras. The entire exchange thus could seem like one more spat in the long-standing love-hate relationship that Americans and the French have sustained for years. If something else occurred in the course of the controversy, In many defenses of foie gras, the practice of gavage was unmoored from its connection to human-animal relationships and employed by French critics to describe American imperialism, consumption, and obesity. Two cartoons vividly encapsulate some of the themes circulating in the French press and on francophone websites. One depicts a fat American declaring, We are opposed to gavage. Jim bites from the large hamburger resting on his massive belly and sips from the scuba tank-sized soft drink cup strapped to his back. Another scolds a bald fat man shown ingesting massive amounts of junk food from a funnel by declaring that foie gras is an important part of French gastronomic patrimony, one recognized by UNESCO, which is true. 
This is followed by an appeal to Americans themselves, though obviously for the benefit of French readers. So, dear American friends, stop stuffing yourselves, and then stop stuffing us. As the rest of, the art of this article demonstrates, the trope of Vage appeared frequently in French responses to the foie gras ban, usually as a commentary on American tendencies to stuff themselves to the point of obesity, while seeking to cram products down the throats of others, in effect fattening them as well. There's, this is what really attracted my attention about the way in which um, the French responded to the foie gras ban, is that Gavage here is directed outward in the sense of feeding the French, and then reflexively the American feeding him or herself. And, and I'll, I'll be discussing very briefly how him or herself, I'm not exactly sure how to gender the bad American, because it, I guess, is depicted in so many different ways. But I think the gendering does matter in some respects, especially if you, if you think of gavage as a forceful, masculinized activity upon a subjected, feminized being, which is often, which is exactly, by the way, how PETA presents this. So the gender dimension is, uh, is worth um, contemplating. As a powerful foodstuff, foie gras reminds us of others, as Elspeth Probin has noted. Yet my concern in this essay is less with the food itself than with the various relationships that its production and consumption entails. The logic of gavage that I will try to probe today illustrates Probin's point that eating is always relational. And she says, conjoins us in a network of the edible and the inedible, the human and non-human, the animal and the, in, the animate and the inanimate. Insofar as these relations are often asymmetrical, eating implies the possibility of being fed by someone else in ways that call into question or can call into question agency, and even sometimes even the humanity of the one who eats or the one who is fed. If feeding seems to entail an unequal relationship between an active feeder and a passive feedee, it can also entail another kind of consuming, namely that of predatory eating, in which the strong consume or feed upon the powerless. As a form of consumption involving asymmetrical and often sexualized and racialized relations of power, the logic of gavage invokes a plurality of practices for different ends, interpersonal as well as intrapersonal, cultural and cross-cultural, located in multiple points around the world. By probing the complex and unstable network of relationships that Gavage signifies and enacts, I propose that animalized representations of the fat American, by which I mean graphic and textual depictions of the corporate body of America as a fattened beast, both within, both within the U.S. and without. So I'm using the Franco-American tension as a way of opening up a larger phenomenon because the fat American is, a frequent, is frequently caricatured within the United States as well as a kind of political football for various, uh, various groups. Um, these depictions of the fattened American as a kind of beast opens up deceptively safe spaces within which anti-fat stereotypes can be articulated so that a given group can name themselves as human in the face of an animal other. Yet because the act of feeding is itself unstable, suggesting both feeding another as well as feeding upon another, the logic of Gavage, which such animalized representations on which such animalized representations depend, requires that both ends of the relationship submit to animality of one sort or another, effectively making an animal out of anyone drawn into its orbit. And this, um, this idea, the recurring figure of the pig, 
who can also be fattened for consumption. Of course, there's also the recurring figure of the cow and birds, the good old ducks and geese, are seem to be minor players in this, but they're all part, I think, of a, uh, of a category of domesticated, essentially, livestock whose purposes are to be fattened for a purpose, fattened for consumption, fattened for slaughter, essentially. Although gave, the verb gave, has a number of figurative extensions, I mean, in France, uh, gavage also refers to a kind of cramming for exams. And this is a metaphor that's been in, in circulating for at least 100 years, and I think it goes back further. Um, and, it's, and, and cramming for exams, or cramming one with intellectual or cultural products, is usually not seen as a good thing. It's just something that one does. Um, the verb itself, gave, primarily refers to the feeding of animals, usually poultry. Unlike the verb to feed, nourrir, which means to give someone or an animal or a plant the food necessary for its life, its growth, um, gave contains an element of force or compulsion. According to Larousse, gave means to feed forcefully a bird by way of a female feeder, une gaveuse. Um, traditionally, the geese have been fed by, uh, by a woman. Um, and to make someone eat to excess. The aims of gavage also differ from those of ordinary feeding. Rather than giving an animal the food necessary for its life, its growth, uh, its development, gave creates overgrowth for a specific end. To force feed a bird is the primary meaning offered in the Trésor de la Langue Française, specifically to make it eat abundantly and with force in order to fatten it. If nourrir is to feed a person, an animal, a plant, for the purposes of growth and life, gave is to feed forcefully and excessively in order to fatten that being for the purposes of sale, slaughter, and consumption. If feeding, nourrissage, promotes life and growth, gavage seems to fatten one to death, or certainly can. There is that element of compulsion that, in the case of animals, is almost always aimed at that kind of consumption. When applied to human eating, gavage has less lethal meanings and may refer to the feeding of newborns, the mentally ill, and others unable to take nourishment actively, often by way of a tube inserted into their stomach through the mouth or nose. If in these cases some degree of force or compulsion is imposed by an external agency, reflexive uses of the verb shift the locus of compulsion to the interior, where one more or less feeds or crams oneself. Sugave, the reflexive form of the verb, to stuff oneself or to force one's force feed oneself, may mean the same thing as to eat to satiety, but it too reveals connotations of compulsion and excess. Thus, one French reporter could observe at the height of the foie gras controversy that, quote, the crisis will not stop the French from stuffing themselves, from sugave, uh, stuffing themselves on the delicacy. Matters have become more grave in the therapeutic setting of bulimia, where gavage is nearly synonymous with binge eating. Thus, one can stuff oneself without hunger, according to uh, one psychology website. And of course, as you can see here, one, uh, one young woman says that I don't eat, I stuff myself. I don't eat, I... Um, Evoking the loss of self-control so commonly cited anti-fat discourses, Gavage also suggests an element of self-imposition, wherein one compels oneself to eat. But this is not a matter of Western eaters and their food and relation to the human feeding of birds. The term Gavage has also been adopted in the former French colony of Mauritania to describe a practice aimed at a consumption of a different sort. 
On the tree-lined boulevards of Paris, the French word describes the process of fattening geese to produce foie gras, explains one author. And she continues, on the sand-blanketed streets of Mauritania's capital, it describes the process of forcibly funneling sweetened milk and millet porridge down the throats of young girls in order to fatten them for marriage. Observed since late 18th century in Mauritania, as well as other African cultures, this long-standing pre-colonial practice has historically met with French criticisms that such girls are subjected to, for example, one source from 1898, Angovage, analogous to that of the geese we fatten in cages. And this theme of girls and women fattened like we fattened Strasbourg geese is one of the common themes that you see throughout the 19th century is articulated across the West as they look to the non-West for examples of the kind of forced fattening that Westerners, they claim, should avoid. And there's, I mean, there's another theme that one could go into if we wanted to, this uh, uh, colonial, imperial, racial dimension to uh, almost racial imperative uh, in the 19th century, which feeds into what the Western um, commitment, it seems, to not become fat like them. And so this whole other, which invokes elements of race, elements of animality that we could discuss uh, <laughs> over lunch, I suppose. In addition to being targeted by international women's rights groups seeking to end the often violent practice, the force-feeding of Mauritanian girls has recently become the subject of articles and documentaries offering a voyeuristic window window onto a practice so at odds with current Western ideas about food and the body. The fact that this this fattening is now, today, sometimes affected with the use of animal growth hormones reinforces Gavage's associations with a kind of bestial subjection. When viewed beyond the production of foie gras, Gavage maps several overlapping worlds of feeding and sets of power relationships. Birds fattened by humans, Mauritanian girls fattened by adults, Westerners fattened by themselves. In all these examples, Gavage is an asymmetrical and gender relationship involving an active feeder and a more or less passive or subjected feedee. Animalization, feminization, and sexualized violence, as well as a subtle racism, circulate uneasily throughout these relationships. Although in the past, birds were traditionally fattened by a woman, Ungaviz, this has been, become less common as the production process has modernized and expanded in France. Similarly, in Mauritania, as usually female family members and friends who carry out the feeding as the relationship becomes one of generational subjection, with the partial aim of satisfying male sexual preferences. And of course, the function of fattening in Mauritania goes far beyond that, as Rebecca Popino has pointed out in her really fascinating ethnography, so I don't mean to, to reduce it to its function to that. But there is an element of sexual consumption, I think, that needs to be kept in mind as we as we think consumption in relation to Gavage. If international women's rights organizations condemn the violent subjection of Mauritanian girls to potentially unhealthy eating eating practices, and uh, one of the ironies is that the fatness of these women is meant to be a sign of fertility, yet the fatness they achieve ends up producing sterility. It works against, as it has since ancient times, works against the aim of uh, fertility itself. PETA invokes long-standing cultural associations between animals and females to highlight the dominated and explicitly feminized status of force-fed animals. The feeding tube's phallic connotations 
have clearly crossed the creative minds of PETA's public relations team. We're probably aware of how hunger-striking female suffragists in Britain and the United States were force-fed in prison nearly a century earlier using very similar techniques. And of course, these, this example of they didn't, I don't think they called it gavage at the time, actually, actually not sure that they did, nevertheless uh, is reminiscent of the kind of relationship between subjected animals and the relationship of women in a, a kind of masculinized world of consumption. Despite the fact that 94% of ducks slaughtered to create foie gras are male, in fact, geese today are rarely used in the production, PETA campaigns against gavage usually feature slender and elegantly dressed women, either face down on a dining table, dead from having been, or apparently dead from having been force-fed, or choking on a feeding tube, usually with a mixture of grain and looks like blood staining their face and clothes. With such unsubtle oral rape imagery on offer, viewers can easily draw connections between phalluses and feeding tubes on their own. When PETA engages in, cross, in species-crossing theatrics to dramatize the invasive ordeal faced by birds then, the use of women forced to undergo gavage invites the spectator to place him or herself in a similar position. Moreover, if PETA's anti-gavage campaign showcases slender women being fattened up like animals, the organization has also, enlisted, has also enlisted itself in the war on obesity by maintaining that a vegetarian diet is less fattening. Whereas the anti-gavage campaigns aimed at eliciting disgust, PETA's critique of dietary choices mobilizes images of animality to evoke fat shame. Save the whales, declared one PETA billboard in Jacksonville, Florida, before public outrage led to it being taken down. Lose the blubber, go vegetarian. Sexualized power relationships between those who feed and those who are fed are especially evident in the fetish known as feederism whose participants evince more than a personal preference for fat. For many male admirers of very fat bodies, the thought of feeding a woman to repletion and beyond combines agency and power with an eroticism that is times in Congress with the agricultural. You'll be happy to know this one's from Britain, not from America. I tried to find an American one, I just couldn't do it. In the largely white heterosexual subculture of feeders and gainers, being taken to immobility represents complete commitment to the relationship. Some feederist practices, as you, as you can see, require equipment not dissimilar to that used in the gavage of birds. And feederism websites provide a forum where enthusiasts can swap techniques for and fantasies about funnel feeding. While some gainers, males as well as females, prefer taking matters into their own hands, um, there is a, a video on YouTube of a man all by himself feeding himself with a funnel which you can see as he documents his weight gain over time. Um, others, and I, and I see that as the, probably the most liberal form that the reflexive verb sogave could ever take. You force feed yourself like a, like, a, like a duck. Not the ducks could do that. Others get pleasure from being fed by others. I don't know if you can read this. You can't. I'm sorry. Um, I, I was doing this in my hotel. I was trying to, in, in, to enlarge it, but I will read that in the middle there. This is from uh, a user called Zappig. I would never have suspected I could simply let myself be fed like livestock and enjoyed it so much. The pleasure of letting go and becoming owned and funnel-fed funnel fed is bliss. Although Francophone members of the subculture have adopted the English terms gainers and feeders, they too maintain that being fed with a funnel represents an act of autonomy as well as pleasure. 
Notwithstanding such assertions of agency in the face of being fattened by another, long-standing associations between gavage and potentially disturbing connotations of animality remain operative in many iterations of the trope. The longer version of this paper has a middle section that I'm, I, I can't really fit into, and which is also, for, for, fortunately, I can't, I can't get into here because it's currently rather fragmentary. But in that middle section, I try to explore the other, what I call the hidden animal in the gavage relationship, that is, the animality of the feeder, the one who is actually being fed. Oh, no, I'm sorry, the one who's actually filling the funnel. Um, and how essentially feeding has the role not only of to give food, but also takes on the, 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 um, takes on a more predatory stance, at least in English, where one can feed or prey upon others, which I think is particularly useful in thinking about the fat American in global terms, because here with the fat American we have and I think this is, this is rather explicit in the, in the second cartoon that I showed, where the caption was essentially, stop force-feeding yourself, stop force-feeding us. This sense in which we, the French, are force-fed for what? For a kind of consumption so that this being can devour us. And this is where this logic of gavage tends to be really quite circular, because there's always somebody who has to play the role of the animal in all of this. And, um, and so the middle sections explores more of the role of human, the human-animal divide, also in relation to Franco-American relationships, where American eating habits, not only what they eat, but how they eat, is revealed as a form of animality, particularly in relation to how the French have essentially laid claim to the concept of la civilisation. I mean, they, they invented it in the 18th century, which is a pretty clearly aligns itself with the epitome of, of humanness. And there's also the, the practice of gastronomy and it's this, this mode of discerned eating, which is also meant to, as one some scholars have pointed out, to de-animalize the eater. And the fact that Americans don't seem to have a tradition of gastronomy in the French sense also seems to reinforce their animality. And so there are other things that are being developed in that section that I can't get into here. But we can, however, talk about the fat American the fat American, interestingly enough, is not a topic of discussion in fat studies, which I found interesting. This is the only, but Coop, Charlotte Cooper's article in the Fat Studies Reader is the only one that I found, and she doesn't even really address it, not really. Her, her aim is to talk about how fat studies needs to look beyond America, but that's... that's yeah. The fat American, she says, such a negative cliché and a well-known, well-known, well-worn stereotype around the gulp that I think that its existence scarcely requires confirmation through academic citation. The relative absence of fat studies scholarship on the fat Americans perhaps understandable, though. What applies to individuals and groups cannot be easily extended to the level of broad national caricatures. Unlike fat individuals, who are routinely subjected to discrimination, harassment, and bullying, the fat American is not viewed as a marginalized or subordinated character on the world stage. Fat girls and women are rightly described as stigmatized because they take up space in defiance of cultural expectations about femininity. Yet as a symbol of national habits and behavior, the fat American's political, economic, and military expansions into global geographic space are more likely to be met with anger and resentment, even, or especially, when depicted, I suppose, as a dangerously tempting female. And of course, I can only think here of the Guess Who song from 1970, American Woman, which is very much about this kind of duality of temptation, but also a kind of devouring, without any smack of, uh, 
of uh, obesity necessarily implied in it. But this is also why I, I have difficulty gendering the fat American, partly because it depends on which mode, in, the mode in which the fat American is viewed. In its mode as force, force feeder, force compulsive feeder, um, one who forces others to eat, it does, definitely seems to be masculinized, and yet in the sense of being subjected to one's own limitless appetites, there is an element of feminization that, go, that is at work in that. That's why I do have difficulty gendering this. Um, but even here, this image is overloaded with so many other cultural stereotypes that it can't even be really reduced to obesity. Perceptions of appetites that devour natu- natural resources and a population seemingly ready to wage war in order to attempt to devour more. As a figure of imposition and consumption, the fat American carries a cultural weight that cannot be measured in kilos, pounds, or stones, but which may make it easier to to use as a locus of anti-fat stereotypes, potentially considered rude in other contexts. In other words, it's easy to make fun of this image in this context, and yet in a way that it's not really considered all that polite to do so when faced with an actual person. Ostensibly about the appropriate treatment of one kind of animal, the foie gras controversy instead prompted a search or hunt for other animals. Although one could discuss how different eating habits and choices are perceived through animal-human distinctions, is America's status as an agent and symptom of a global obesity crisis that is often targeted reactions to what some of their scholars have called one of the most terrible scourges that threatens humanity. America is credited with exporting fatness through the expansion of fast food chains and other unhealthy food products, yet it is also said to be a principal exporter of fat stigma as well particularly through the promotion of moralizing critiques about fat bodies. The Fat America condenses a number of historical figures that have circulated widely in the Western imagination. The 19th century um, image of the fat capitalist is an obvious source. And by the 20th century, America would come to embody the worst excesses of the powerful businessman, whose girth symbolized status as well as the ability to feed off of or devour others. As the neoliberal nation par excellence, America's reputation as a devourer is intimately tied to the old notions of capitalism as a consuming enterprise that, in a circular manner, turns upon itself. I couldn't find a uh, better image of here of, uh, of uh, one without the uh, that sort of watermark on it. But uh, here you have America as a kind of Ronald Reagan, I would say, shown devouring not so much food as oil, and but you get you get the idea. Newspapers from around the world, as well as cartoonists within the United States, often depict American society as one big belly, mindlessly driven by insatiable and voracious appetites for all kinds of things, oil, drugs, uh, and of course, food. French reactions to the emerging crisis fit into a long tradition of seeing in American society scenes of a possible European future, as one historian has put it. The case of the United States has struck our minds strongly and sooner than expected. In many ways, it represents the almost unreal showcase of the epidemic that is the obesity epidemic's development. Although France's socialist, anti-capitalist traditions make the media more likely to engage with fatness as a reflection of corporate greed than the moral failings of the person, the obesity crisis is nevertheless presented in highly moralizing and alarmist tones. Abigail Sagi explains that French news reports tend to frame it as a product of corporate irresponsibility. 
decline of French tradition in the wake of American cultural and economic imperialism, and an injustice of poverty. Framed in this way, she says, fact becomes a lightning rod for deep-seated fears of American imperialism. In this climate, it is not hard to imagine how obesity could be seen as an issue of national identity. This is a form of imperialism that replicates itself even as it extracts. The, fear, the French fear of what they call the Americanization of our bodies, or one person called it that, is palpable here. But it's not only food that is being shoved down Gallic throats. In many respects, the fat American, even if it appears as a singular figure, conceals at least two different kinds of eater that perhaps mirror the country's dual class system that readily translates into what one scholar has called a two-body society. That is where elites no longer are fat. They are, they are much more slender, they are much more fit, whereas it's the lower classes who are, who are uh, much larger. But this internal subordination, whereby fit elites prey on fat masses, on masses being fattened up like livestock, which is one motif that occurs in some anti-obesity um, campaigns in the U.S., is complicated by the suspicion that the same seemingly docile masses are complicit in their own subordination, if not by actively willing it, then by passively allowing, allowing it to happen. Indeed, such is the status of the idea of personal responsibility in the U.S. that is widely employed within the country that denigrate those who become fat. Divested of their potential status as victim, these seemingly willingly subjected masses become part of the larger parasitical entity that some people know as America. Viewed from a European perspective, where traditional hierarchies of taste and refinement remain intact, despite the development of democratic political systems, American culture serves as the masses in all of their coarse and vulgar glory. This is no doubt why the fat American is usually depicted graphically as male, but almost, um, almost always as white and lower class. There's another dimension to animality here that I think um, definitely plays a role, and this is an historical one that connects the lower classes generally with animality, and this is a historical tradition of connecting the proletariat with a kind of bestial underclass who are, if not actually degenerate on the verge of slipping into literal animality, they figuratively do it through their kind of immoral, bestial attitudes and moralities and their coarse and vulgar bodies, all of which you can put under scare quotes, obviously. I do think this plays a definite role in some French reactions, despite the socialist tradition. Uh, but there's more to it here. You can, this is, this is um, this, I love this one because <laughs> I love this one because it's, it's a sense of uh, something I don't talk about here. It's in the middle, the excluded middle section, uh, where part of fat's connection to animality is not merely in the sense that the animals that tend to be fattened tend to be those that are docile, that historically have been seen as thick and, uh, and therefore kind of stupid or dense. So there's also a, an older historical sense in which the substance itself, fat, is insensate and produces insensateness in those who are fat. So you get old uh, ideas from the Bible that say that the fat, wealthy man cannot hear the, the, the cries of the poor. And this is a recurring biblical motif that cuts right into the 20th century. Here, this is a, a conservative attack on the, the fat, obviously, watcher of the John Stewart show and apparently Letterman's in there and uh, the liberal media, or the mainstream media, as it's often called. Of course, the Chinese there are suggesting that, yes, America is awake, but uninformed, stupid, uh, because these are the sources of stupidity, whereas Fox News apparently is truth. 
But it goes even further. I love this one as well. I don't know who did this. I'm not even sure if I can use these because I found them on the internet, but I want to use this one because here it's, I found the original photo of that man there. Everything else obviously been imposed with, uh, with, um, I'm pointing there, you're looking here. As in the post with uh, Photoshop. But I love this here, not only the animalization of the fat man who has really no brains except fries, but there's also the literal branding of him with the golden arches there. But of course he doesn't notice because fat is an insensate material, so you can brand or hurt him, and he won't even feel it, much less feel anything for anybody else. And so you have, and of course there is the position of the fat American in a global context here with the, uh, the starving African child. And so you have an awful lot going on there. And yes, you have a, a ketchup bottle stabbed into the back of his neck. And of course he doesn't feel that either because we know where his attention is. It's an awful lot going on in that, um, in that image. This uh, common perception that the American is uh, kind of an animal patent for the slaughter, um, it no doubt received a kind of metaphorical boost in the wake of the foie gras affair. What, what is at stake here, I think, in some of these, some of the imagery that comes out of the foie gras controversy is in part the question of who can make the most legitimate claim to the status of human. A Swiss dieting website is called... Uh, Fit plate, sidestep animal rights to remind Europeans generally uh, to defend themselves and their children from all consuming beasts that reproduce itself through cultural imposition. The article's title named the animal in question, but I, I, love, the, I love the formulation. Americans stuff themselves, the French force feed geese. So the French take on the role of the human in relation to geese because that's what humans do to animals, because that, but to force feed oneself. To, to, to engage in, in, in uh, self-gavage is a willingly animal... It's a self-animalization here. As we've already seen, connecting an, uh, Americans to fattened animals was a popular way of reversing the terms of the anti-foie gras ban. A reader for a Le, Le Parisien newspaper weighed in with just such imagery. America, um, a reader named Versingeteritz, um has the most obese people. Here's a definition of the word obese, someone gave by McDonald's. Given the high and inflated mortality rates that have been correlated with obesity, it is no wonder that fattening itself, oneself like an animal would appear to lead to self-inflicted death. Ah, the American dream, reflected one sardonic blogger named Odysseus on the scourge facing humankind. Who has ever dreamt of being um, a cow that one fattens for the slaughter? The Fit Plate website nevertheless pressed further. American eating habits shock most of the rest of the world, not least because they eat all day and in the process uh, produce massive rates of obesity that constitutes a monumental human catastrophe. Had the phenomenon remained localized in a single country, it may not have been such a cause for alarm. Yet, as the fat American's belly protrudes from the body, it resonates with global perceptions of the nation's influence in the world. And this is a great line. With such an appetite, the stomach is the very image of America, imposing. Fitplate.com effectively observes the chain of gavage noted above. The human, French, force-feed birds, while Americans, their human, human or animal status is unclear, force-feed themselves. But by compelling others to feed and to become fat as well, the circle of animality is closed. This is how the French and Europeans 
um, generally risk being animalized like Americans, even becoming the veritable copies. The next generation of Americans is here, the website says, ready to take over. But this time it will be European, our children. Only by adhering to tradition will Europeans risk being dragged into this hellish cycle. The article concludes by withdrawing onto the seemingly firmer ground of health and nutrition. Without being too patriotic, it argues, let's still remain a bit European. It's good for health. Remaining European or French means resistance to becoming like animals, especially when the one doing the feeding is already seen as a kind of animal. In, uh, oh, I'm sorry, here, I, you know, you see... This is not from the fit plate side, but I found this elsewhere, but you can already see how it's almost always women's bodies, and when this particular case are being shown here to demonstrate the difference between an American woman and a European woman. The American woman is hunched over her food, feeding away, and the, the, the um, European woman, uh, of course they both have whale tail going on there, but she has a little basket, picnic basket, and she's not really looking at her food because she's looking out at the beach, uh, at the water don't really know. Not concentrated on higher, better, more aesthetic things, whereas the, the, the Pan American woman there is, is, is a not. In um, the subtly titled uh, Arton de Manger de la Merde, um, Koff implores his readers to stop submitting to the powers of agribusiness on American models and thus cease, thus cease on eating unhealthy, abject food. Here, too, the trope of, of Gavage seems opposite as the very things that Europeans and others are supposedly, are supposedly having crammed down their throats threaten to make them fat as well. The, the Versingetorix, the user for uh, the Parisian site, also recommends dietary changes. We must forgive, for, uh, forbid le gavage of our citizens by or with hamburgers. Since it symbolically condenses many other superfluous objects of consumption, obesity is ultimately about more than food and body size. Comments left in an article on the Parisian website register complaints like this. Let's prohibit Hollywood films in France. Um, we're fed up with that. I didn't talk about how uh, uh, to be fed up with something is also has gov- is the verb is also gave. So I've had enough, as if one's been fed to the point where one cannot take anymore. That's why it's very, very operative there. Um, the metaphor is also operative in discussions of global finance, where a journalist proved the notion, raised in the comment section of his article, that one should struggle against those obese people who cram themselves with wealth created by others. The right-wing League Francilien, uh, founded in 2012 to ensure the promotion and defense of the historic identities of public freedoms of the inhabitants of the Ile-de-France region, declares itself to be anti-American for a number of reasons. Believe themselves to be masters of the world, the site declares, Americans shit on the entire planet and engage in predatory business practices. Yet these are predators who devour by feeding. The Americans force feed us their subculture, their Big Macs, their music, and their movies, always set in places like Los Angeles, Las Vegas, New York, and Washington. There is thus in many French reactions to the fat American a satisfying, if phantasmatic, reversal of roles wherein perceived domination is revealed as being mindless and bestial, so much so that the matter the matter of consumption is in fact less of a predator than that of a docile beast fit for the slaughter. In the consumption of foie gras, a fat eater could imaginatively reorder what he or she perceives as an unequal relationship. Yet the logic of gavage requires that someone play the role of a passive and subjected animal. 
And if the fat American performs a double gavage, whereby she or he and others are fattened, that the, it is the French who cast themselves as helpless victims, sexualized, feminized, and animalized, pleading to have the feeding tube removed. While laying claim to the status of victim may provide a rallying point around which new resistances may be organized, a restoration of the human, entails a temporary passage through animality in order to achieve this. The links between corpulence and animality have received surprisingly little comment in fat studies scholarship, beyond observations that animal invective dehumanizes and degrades, which is of course true. To be displaced from the status of full humanity, notes Hardy, and particularly to be rendered as animal, is in the context of a deeply anthropocentric system to be marginalized in the most fundamental of ways, which is true. While it is true that animal invective facilitates weight discrimination, I have tried to show in this paper that there are other ways of approaching how fatness, as well as feeding and fattening, have been so inextricably bound up with notions of animality that they structure our thinking in imperceptible ways. The use of animal invective in this cross-cultural crisis invokes the human-animal hierarchy that most of us take for granted, and which tacitly structures so many forms of exclusion that rely upon what one author calls the pejorative metaphorics that animal alterity provides. While it's unclear whether the use of animal invective is capable of being ended, especially considering how deeply it is embedded in so many forms of othering, perhaps a drawing attention to its subtle operations can shed light on the often unhelpful consequences that it entails.